Lord, we come before you now and we recognize that there is uh, a weightiness to reading your word, to seeking to understand your word. There's a weightiness to uh, our worship and our singing. And all of these things are weighty because you are holy. And that holiness is something that quite uh, frequently we don't comprehend as we ought. And so I pray that you would help us today to have uh, just a small glimpse of your holiness. I pray that you would take your word and you've already promised that it will not return void. And so we pray that you would use your word to do today uh, that which you have uh, designed it to do, that it would encourage those who are discouraged, that it would rebuke those who are in sin, that it would point all of us to Christ and the sufficiency of the gospel and just the glory of your character and your person, that we would be in awe of you today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Today we will be looking at the last verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We have been uh, in a series in the book of 1 Corinthians, and we've spent quite a bit of time in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 13 says this, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This verse, if you are not aware, can be found on picture frames, wooden crosses, keychains, and bookmarks in every Christian bookstore across the country. Some have just the first part of the verse, some have just the second part of the verse, and some have the whole thing. I went to christianbook.com, and I found that this verse is prominently displayed on ties, inspirational coloring cards, magnetic bookmarks, notebooks, a wedding unity candle, silicone bracelets, tote bags, bird magnets, Bible covers, coffee mugs, water bottles, pens, and more. Some of you may have this verse in your house somewhere on something. And for having this verse, and by, by the way, I'm not saying that it's, it's bad if you have this verse. It's good to have the Bible verses, okay? What I am saying, however, is that with how frequently this verse appears in our modern, uh, broadly speaking, evangelical world, you would think that we have a good grasp on its meaning, but I don't know if that's entirely the case. I think that the church in America, and I'm using the word church in the broadest sense possible, has a tendency, this is a little bit of a broad brushstroke here, but I think the church in America has a tendency to view 1 Corinthians 13, 13 in sentimental terms, in inspirational terms. And I would suggest to us that this verse is certainly much deeper than that. The Apostle Paul is giving us here in this text today, via divine inspiration, three pillars of the Christian faith. He establishes faith, hope, and love as abiding and lasting Christian virtues. So deep are each of these three virtues, faith, hope, and love, that one could spend an entire lifetime studying just one of these three virtues. 
And of course, this is not the only time in uh, the New Testament that these three virtues appear together. In fact, some think that this was a well-known kind of triad of virtues during the New Testament times because of how frequently it shows up in the New Testament. We see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 3, you see, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet of the hope of salvation. Galatians 5, 5 through 6, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And there are many more, not only in the New Testament, but also in the early church. These three virtues go together frequently. But let's go ahead and jump right into the passage in front of us and look at these kind of one by one. First Corinthians chapter 13 is, of course, the well-known love chapter. Paul is appealing to these Corinthian Christians, and the main gist of his appeal is, you guys need to do a course correction. You're going the wrong way. They have to do a course correction because what has happened, if you've been following through this series, is that the Corinthian Christians loved the gifts more than they loved the people that the gifts were supposed to minister to. God had said, I'm going to give this church certain gifts, certain skills and abilities and these kinds of things, and I want you to use that to build up and encourage your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And instead of doing that, they said, look how great I am because I have this gift, and you don't have this gift, so you must not be as great as me. And so this is what the context is. It's a serious error, and Paul corrects them and informs them of this simple truth. Love is superior to the gifts. And that's what he's been establishing again and again and again in chapter 13. He begins chapter 13 by saying that you could speak in tongues, you could have prophetic gifts, you could understand all mysteries, you can have faith to move mountains, or you could even give yourself to be sacrificed and your body burned. But if you do that without love, you are nothing. Then he lists the attributes of love. Love is patient and kind, it is not rude, it is not irritable, so on and so forth. Then he talks about love enduring forever. And now he concludes this poem on love with verse 13. Now here in his conclusion of this poem, he gives to us two additional Christian virtues. We already know of the virtue of love because he's been hitting this again and again and again and again. But now he introduces here in this concluding verse, faith and hope as Christian virtues. And as I mentioned in the introduction, the, the Bible introduces or includes these three virtues in other places. I counted uh, at least ten places in the New Testament where these three virtues were brought together. And while uh, this part right here is maybe a little bit of speculation, I think it is reasonable to assume that the Corinthian Christians were familiar with this 
triad. One commentator makes the same observation and says there is good evidence to suggest that this was a familiar triad in early Christian preaching, and therefore it would have been well known to the Corinthians. Perhaps the Corinthians too, like us, had faith, hope, and love printed on ties, coffee mugs, bookmarks, t-shirts, and inspirational coloring cards. Whatever their prior knowledge of this triad was, it's important for us to define it. And so when we get to this passage and we get to verse 13, and he says, now there's faith, hope, and love, what do you mean by those things? And so let's go ahead and take a look at each of these in turn, faith, and then hope, and then love. What is faith? The word faith um, is, in the Greek, a noun, or at least in this verse it is a noun. And the Greek word is the word pistis, and the verb form is pistuo. You can hear how they sound very similar to one another. So the noun is faith, and the verb form of this same word is translated most frequently in the New Testament as believe. And so you have the noun is faith, you have the verb is believe. Sounds the same in Greek because they're cognates. It's the noun and verb. English is maybe a little bit more tricky to connect them together because faith and believe don't sound like one another, and yet that's, uh, that, that's what they are, the noun and verb forms here in the Greek. So most of the time then, when you are reading the New Testament, not all the time, but most of the time, the word faith and the word believe are the same word, just noun and verb forms. One uh, lexicon uh, defines the word uh, this way. It says, faith is the state of believing on the basis of the reliability of one trusted. Trust or confidence or faith. A lot of times we will use the word trust to talk about faith. The book of Hebrews, of course, as you know, defines the word faith this way. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then I would like to provide us with this excellent little three-part definition of faith uh, given to us by John Murray. And this is probably uh, one of the best definitions that I've come across. Murray writes this, faith is knowledge, that's number one, passing into conviction, which is number two, and it is conviction passing into confidence, number three. So according to Murray, faith is first knowledge. Why is faith knowledge? You have to know what you're having faith in, right? If I said you need to have faith, what would your next logical question be? Faith in what? <laughs> Am I supposed to have faith in this chair that I'm sitting in? Am I supposed to have faith that my favorite sports team is going to win? What, are we, what am I having faith in? What you are having faith in is called the object of your faith. Uh, and of course, we would say, as believers in Christ, that the object of our faith is Christ. <laughs> We are trusting in Jesus to save us from our sins. You have to know that. You have to know that you're trusting in Christ. 
There are certain facts about the gospel that you have to know. And so this is why John Murray says that the first part, the first piece of the puzzle in defining faith is that faith is first knowledge. If you don't know what you're having faith in, then you you can't have faith because you're not trusting in something. And so the New Testament does provide us with a number of things that we must know in order to be saved. Galatians 2.16 says that we know a person is not justified by works, but through faith. If you are going to have faith in Christ, you have to know that it is uh, in uh, faith and not works. You also have to know that Jesus was raised from the dead, according to Romans 10.9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe what? That God raised him from the dead you will be saved. You see there? That's the content of our faith. You have to know something. You also have to know that Jesus is God. John 8, 24, I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, unless you believe in my deity, you will die in your sins. You must know that Jesus is the Messiah. John 20 and verse 31, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. You must also know that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever draw near to God must believe that he exists. You must believe, you can't have faith in Christ if you don't believe he exists, okay? This is kind of like, you know, uh, first base here. This is the bunny hill. This is simple. You have to know about Christ if you are going to have faith in Christ. Christian faith thus emphasizes the importance of the content of faith. So the world might talk about faith in more uh, inspirational or sentimental terms, and the world is not as concerned with the content of your faith. So if you are going through a trial or something like that, you might say, man, I just have faith. And a lot of people would be like, yeah, that's great, that's wonderful, but you have faith at what? That you're going to get better, that you're going to have the endurance to get through it, that, that Christ is going to help you. What, what are you saying you have faith in? And we kind of have divorced in our modern context the idea of faith from the object of its faith. As long as you have faith, whatever that randomly might be, that's fine. No, you have to have faith in God, in Christ. You don't have faith in Buddha or Gandhi or anyone else. You have faith in Christ. That's the first aspect of faith, according to to Murray, that we must know something. Second, Murray says that faith is conviction. What he means by this is that you believe the gospel to be true. The facts of the gospel are true. So somebody might hear the gospel preached, and they might um, know all the facts to be true, but they don't believe that They might say, oh, that's just a bunch of religious hogwash. Jesus doesn't save you if you trust in him. Okay, they've heard it. They have the knowledge, but they don't have the belief that it is true and that Jesus will save you. So that's not conviction. If you you don't have that, if you know, if someone preaches the gospel to you and you know what the gospel is, but you don't believe the gospel, then you don't have faith. Okay? Faith requires, number one, knowledge. It requires, number two, conviction. And then it requires a third thing. Now, before we look at the third thing, I want to just take you down a very small detour and tell you and inform us 
that the demons have number one and number two. They know gospel facts and they believe those facts are true. James tells us this in James 2.19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe in <laughs> The demons have good theology. The demons have been around for a long time and they, they understand what Christ did on the cross. They, they have this knowledge and they have this conviction in the sense that Murray's talking about it. They know that it's true. But they don't have salvation. Now, the first reason for that is because God did not provide salvation for the demons. But they also are not trusting in this third component that Murray is talking about. There is a third aspect of faith. He says faith is number one, knowledge. Faith is number two, conviction. And faith is number three, confidence. What he means by this third one is that you actually place your trust in the person of Christ himself. That's what faith is. You can know that Christ saves, but say, I don't want him to save me. Then you don't have faith. You have to actually get in, so to speak. You have to trust in Christ. Now, you are going to have to forgive me for doing this, uh, but I am going to uh, recycle a sermon illustration. Um, and I don't think I do this too often. I do it every once in a while. Um, so you'll have to, to forgive me for this. But it is, I think, one of the best illustrations to explain what faith is, at least this third component. In fact, it actually touches on all of them in a sense. Um, but I'm just going to read this to you here. It says this, In the 19th century, the greatest tightrope walker in the world was a man named Charles Blondin. On June 30th, 1859, he became the first man in history to walk a tightrope across Niagara Falls. Over 20,000 or 25,000 people gathered to watch him walk 1,100 feet suspended on a tiny rope 160 feet above the raging waters. He worked without a net or a safety harness of any kind. The slightest slip would prove fatal. When he safely reached the Canadian side, the crowd burst into a mighty roar. In the days that followed, he would walk across the falls many times. Once he walked across on stilts, I have no idea how that's humanly possible. <laughs> Another time he took a chair and a stove with him and sat down midway across, cooked an omelet and ate it. Once he carried his manager across riding piggyback. And once he pushed a wheelbarrow across loaded with 350 pounds of cement. On another occasion, he asked the cheering spectators if they thought he could push a man across sitting in a wheelbarrow. A mighty roar of approval rose from the crowd. Spying a man, cheering loudly, he asked, Sir, do you think I could safely carry you across in this wheelbarrow? Yes, of course. Get in. The great Blondin replied with a smile, the man refused. <laughs> I would have refused too. <laughs> Let's apply John Murray's definition of faith to this. Faith is number one, knowledge. He had knowledge of what his faith would have been. It was in Charles Blondin's skill. Okay. He had number two, conviction. When he asked, do you think I could take you across? He said, yes. <laughs> I do think you could. I believe that. But he did not have number three. 
He did not have that, he's not getting in, okay? This is, I think, one of the closest analogies that I can think of that expresses these three realities of faith. Faith is believing the right facts about the gospel, or it's knowing the right facts about the gospel, it's believing those facts to be true, and then it is getting in, that is to say, repenting and believing in Christ, trusting in him to rescue you. Our faith as Christians must be characterized by all three. We ought to have the right knowledge about the gospel, we ought to believe the gospel is true, and we ought to act upon the gospel by trusting in Christ. So that is what faith is. When he says these are the three, these, he gives us these three pillars of Christian virtues, that's faith. That's the first one. The second one is this virtue of, uh, of hope. But one more question before we look at that, and that is this. Why does faith appear in this triad? I mean, you've got this triad scattered throughout the New Testament. You have early church fathers mentioning this triad. And, and you think to yourself, if I could have picked any three Christian virtues that I was going to repeat over and over and over and over again in Scripture, what would those three virtues be? And one of them happens to be faith. Now, what is it about faith that qualifies it to be in this list? And I think the answer is simple. Faith is the singular virtue that restores fallen man into a relationship with God. Faith is that thing. We believe in justification by faith alone. It's, it's not faith plus effort plus works plus saying this particular prayer or doing this particular thing. We are put into a relationship with God, and we are forgiven of our sins, and we have an eternity in heaven simply on the basis of one attribute, and that is faith. I think that's why it makes it in this list. I think there's a second reason why it makes it in this list. And that is because what is so glorious about faith is not faith in itself, but as what the end of faith is. Let me say it this way. What is so glorious about faith is that which faith points to. Faith is not pointing to you and I. I mean, faith does not point to your greatness. In fact, <laughs> if there's anything in faith that points to you, it is in your weakness. Okay? But faith has a big arrow, and it is pointing to God. It's saying, trust him. Trust in God. Don't trust in yourself. Trust in God. And so the arrow is pointing in that direction towards God, and it is saying, he is sufficient. He is worthy. He is great. He is good. He is kind. He is able to save you. And so you are taking in, the, in faith, you are elevating God, and you are worshiping and exalting him alone and not you. That is why faith is so great, because it points to our great God. And I think that's why it makes it into this list. We come to salvation in Christ by faith alone, not by our works, but by a complete and total dependence on Christ. And thus, it deserves the rank of one of the three Christian virtues. That's number one. Number two is hope. You may recall that earlier I used uh, Hebrews chapter 11 to define faith, and it is also connected to hope as well. 
We see faith as the assurance of things hoped for. Hope, I'm not going to spend uh, nearly as much time on hope here because uh, I would say that hope is almost a synonym for faith. Uh, Hope is closely related to faith because it indicates that you trust in God for what? The future, right? That's that's what hope is. Hope, Hope is saying, I have faith in God, yes, for today, but I have faith in God for the future. My hope is in God. My hope is not in myself. My hope is that I will be in heaven with him for eternity one day. Now, as a reminder of this attribute of Christian hope, Christian hope, keep in mind, is not speculation. Okay? This is completely different from the way we usually use the word hope today. We usually use the word hope to talk about speculation. I really hope I get that job. I really hope my team wins. I I, I really hope, I don't know, I don't crash on my way home. I I don't know. I really hope whatever. (laughs) I hope this. I hope that. I, I have a speculation Christian hope is not that. Christian hope is, and I think the best two words to give a definition to Christian hope is this, confident expectation. That's what Christian hope is. When I say I hope that I will be in heaven one day, what I am meaning is I know that because of God's grace, I will be there. And that is what Christian hope is. Um, and I would say that the reason that hope is in the ranks of this triad of virtues is also because of its object as well. What is the object of hope? It's God. Again, glorifying that same God. That is the second virtue. The third virtue is love. And I'm going to get into that a little bit more in a minute here because in the second half of the verse, he's going to say the greatest of these is love, and so we'll unpack it a little bit more there. But the one more noteworthy thing I want to say about the first half of this verse is that faith, hope, and love, all three of these are said to abide. That is to say they will all last. They are all permanent. Faith and hope, and there is some discussion actually about this, whether faith and hope will last into eternity. Uh, and I think I didn't count, but probably it's almost a 50-50 split in all the commentaries that I read. Um, But I would suggest that faith and hope will last into heaven because we still are trusting in God to be there. I still am relying on him. I'm not, uh, at that point, I am in his presence, but I have hope in heaven that I'm going to be in his presence tomorrow, (laughs) and I'm trusting him continually as I am in his presence. And so these virtues will last forever. But something stands out in these three virtues. What is it that stands out in these three virtues? It's the second half of the verse. Which one is it? It's love. He says, faith, hope, love, they abide, but the greatest of these is love. What purpose does this verse, verse 13, hold in this passage? Why is verse 13 here? How is it, hold, what it, how is it holding together what's going on? 
I want to trace, I, 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 wanna, I want to go back and pull in the context of this whole section and walk you through step by step the logic of the Apostle Paul and hopefully this will make sense. And I even put it up on the screen for you so you can think about it and process it a little bit more. And I'm going to give you six points here that I think is a logical A to B to C to D to get us to where we are in verse 13. Number one, Paul is dealing with some selfish people who love spiritual gifts because they think it tells others how important they are. Okay? This is who he's dealing with. There's a bunch of people who say, look what I have, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. That's number one. Number two, Paul corrects their thinking by reminding them that the people don't exist for the sake of the gifts, but the gifts exist for the sake of the people. In other words, God gives gifts to serve others. Right? These, these gifts exist to serve people. You're supposed to use the gift to serve. You're not supposed to use the gift to put a billboard up on top of your head and say, look at how great I am. Okay? That's where we've been so far. That's number two. Number three is this. And this is talking about chapter 13. Paul spends a whole chapter telling them about how great love is and how it is better than the gifts and how it is the purpose for which the gifts exist. Gifts exist to show love. Do you see your neighbor sitting next to you here at Crossview Church? You are supposed to use the gifts that God has given you to minister to them and to serve them and to love them. That's the third point. Number four, love is so great even that tongues, prophecy, understanding, knowledge, faith, and sacrifice are nothing without it. That's how he starts out chapter 13, remember? It's nothing without love. Number five, we also saw this in chapter 13. Love is so great because it's eternal. The, the, the partial passes away. The eternal, that is love, lasts forever. And then finally, number six, this is verse 13. Love is so great that it is even the best of the three greats. The three great Christian virtues. You know faith, hope, and love? You know how we talk about that all the time? You know how it's in at least 10 verses in the Bible? You know how the early church fathers talk about it? And you know how we have this plastered on ties and coffee mugs and all this kind of stuff? The greatest one is love. Out of the three greats, this is the top. Do you see then how this verse fits in with the logic of the chapter? This is not disconnected from all that has gone on under the bridge, all the water that's gone under so far. All that is, has been culminating and leading up, and finally he gets to this verse and says, the greatest of all of these is love. This is how you are supposed to act in the church, not like selfish brats, but people who truly love and care and serve your neighbors. Here's another way of summarizing it. Love is the greatest, 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 it's the greatest, love is the greatest, love is the greatest, love is the greatest, and oh, by the way, you know about those three Christian virtues, faith, hope, and love? Love is the greatest. It's, it's the top of this list. Now, why? 
I mean, that's a natural question, right? <laughs> Why? Why is love the top of this list? Well, Paul doesn't tell us, which is kind of frustrating. <laughs> he just declares it. Now, he can declare it because he's writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and God can declare, and he doesn't have to give a reason why. He does in many times, but he could just simply say, love is the greatest, and that's what it is. But I will bring in a couple of other passages and a couple of other thoughts on this. One reason that we might say that love is the greatest is because of what we see in 1 John 4, 7 through 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. God is love. I mean, God, the very character of God himself is that he is love. It doesn't say that God is loving or that God loves. He does, Okay. But it says God is love. And so the, the verb comes out of the noun. God is love, therefore God loves and does loving acts towards people. Okay? Matthew twenty-two, thirty-six to 40. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like, uh, is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love is, according to these two passages, the greatest noun. It's the greatest noun because God is love. And love is the greatest verb because the greatest commandment is to love others. That's the verb form, to go and love others. Love is the pinnacle You see, because God himself does not need to have faith and hope. Because he's the object of that. God is not, I'm trusting in something outside of myself to da-da-da-da-da. No, he, he is. But, even though God doesn't need to have faith and hope, I mean, we do, certainly, but God has love. So to be loving, ultimately, is to be Christ-like. That is why this is such a pinnacle here, is because for me to be loving to others is to be like Christ. That's the goal of our Christian sanctification, is it not? To be like Christ. All right, where does this leave us today? Um, Well, we should love others, so there's that. I do want to say that we have a tendency to view love as synonymous with kindness. And it is true. In fact, we just saw a few weeks ago that love is kind, is patient and is kind. But love is more than that. There there is uh, a lot more going on in what love is. Well, uh, what is it? If, If love is more multifaceted than just kindness, what is love? Well, in case you missed it, Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And so I just want to give a couple of practical thoughts here on loving others according to this context here. Um, 
you, you preach a sermon on 1 Corinthians 13, and the pinnacle verse is that the greatest is love. And so immediately we are thinking, how can I apply this? I can apply this by being a loving person. And so we could be here all day long with saying love by doing this and love by doing that and love by that and this and this. We could apply this text in about a million directions. There are a million things you could do in your day-to-day life that would express this virtue of love. So I certainly can't cover all of them, but I thought let's first apply this in the way that is most relevant to the immediate context of the passage. The immediate context of the passage is that you guys are not serving other people in the church with your gifts. You're using them as a display of your own righteousness. Stop that and love others. That's the context, right? So, so, so let's apply it in that kind of a way. Remember, there is a connection between the, the big connection, the big tie here that we cannot sever. We can't look at a text of Scripture in isolation. The big connection point is that there is a tie between love and spiritual gifts. Those are connected together here. Okay, this is not just a sentimental detour in 1 Corinthians. There's a tie between spiritual gifts and love. Okay, so if that's the case, if the immediate context is that you ought to lovingly use your gifts to minister to others in the local church, then the first application is obvious. Regularly attend church and use your gifts to serve others in the church. That is as close of an application as you can get to the immediate purpose and reason why this was written. It is unloving to withhold yourself and your gifts from the body of Christ. We are not called to be rogue Christians. We are not called to be isolated Christians. We are not called to be individual Christians. We are called to be Christians in a body. This is the exact meaning of Hebrews 10. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Now, according to Hebrews chapter 10, why should you not neglect meeting together? What is the reason? Because of the first half here, right? You have to be able to stir up one another. And we've made this observation before. Hebrews 10 is not first saying, hey, you guys need to keep going to church so that you could be blessed in church. Yes, you should be blessed in church. But, but first, or, uh, Hebrews 10 is rather saying, you need to go to church so that you can bless others. That's why you should not neglect church, because of that reason. Why shouldn't you neglect to meet together in the church? Because if you do, you miss opportunities to stir up one another to love and good works. Now, I understand, let me just go on a little bit about this here and thinking through some applications. I understand there are days when church is over and I have got to run out of here when I do church membership, okay? 
That day, I'm like running out of here as fast as I can, okay? I don't have that today, so you can talk to me as long as you want. There are days when some of you guys have to run. I, I get that. There's schedules and there's things, and you've got to run out of here to make it to something else. That's, that's fine. Um, generally speaking, though, I would suggest to us that part of being here in the church is not to be just a spectator, but it is to fellowship and love one another, okay? So how are you going to love others in this church if Sunday after 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 Sunday, you immediately zip out of here, okay? You, you can't do it if that's you. Um, this coming Wednesday is our first Wednesday back at the YMCA for Wednesday night church, and if you have not been coming to Wednesday night prayer meeting, I would suggest this is a great time to kind of hit that reset button and be here for prayer. Do you think prayer is important as a believer? Now, you probably didn't think that a sermon on the greatness of love would have attend church as its first application. That's a low blow, John. You just are trying to get everyone to... This, this is the context that this is happening in. Do you see that context here? The context is be there and serve. That's the context. And so I'm saying be here and serve. That's how we love one another. I think that application is impossible to avoid in this passage. Okay, now... Before I move on from this, I'm just going to push this a little bit further. Just nudge a little bit more, okay? What if you had a son or daughter who joined you at the family dinner table as frequently as you attend church? What if your son or daughter got up from the dinner table as quickly as you leave church? This is, this is not a guilt trip sermon, okay? This is not what this is, Okay. This is, I'm appealing to you as a family. We, we are a family. Let's be together and love one another and enjoy being together, okay? That's what this is. But be here, okay? And Wednesday, too. All right, what other applications can we draw from this text? Um, again, there's millions of them, but just give me, a, let me give a couple more thoughts. That was the first one to... Um, uh, sorry, I didn't put it up on the screen today, um, but uh, being here and serving is the first one. The second application would be invest in others beyond just talking about the weather, okay? You can talk about the weather, but just talk about more than the weather, okay? Find one person in church that you don't know well and get to know them, pray for them, have them over for dinner, and build a relationship with that person, okay? Find somebody in the church like that, okay? Okay. And then the final application is love others by being patient with their weaknesses and their shortcomings, okay? No one has shortcomings, so we don't have to worry about this. But if someone theoretically did have a shortcoming, in, if theoretically they were your spouse or theoretically someone else here in the church, then you ought to be patient with that particular individual. And that's one way to show love to that person. To love is to be Christ-like. And that is what we're called to do, to be like Christ, are we not? And so let us love one another in this way. And, of course, one of the greatest things that we could do in showing love to one another is by pointing them to faith, one or the other in the triad, the faith that we can have in Christ. If someone that you know is not, does not know Christ, to be loving is to preach the gospel to them and to point them to faith. If you don't know Christ, 
uh, I would be happy to talk with you and point you to the gospel today. Thank you, God, for today and the time we've had. We pray that you'd help us to apply this text. Thank you for your goodness to us in Christ's name. Amen.